The Precinct Omega Weekly Podcast is supported by Horizon Wars Zero Dark, sci-fi skirmish war games in a fallen earth. Visit WarGameVault at wargamevault.com and search for Zero Dark. It's Friday the 27th of August. My name is Roby Jenkins. And my name is Bernard. And this is the news. Stand by for incoming intelligence. So first, uh, a piece of news to which I am personally coming in a little bit late, but because it's fundamentally interesting and significant, I'm going to mention it now. Guild Ball isn't quite dead. So, two things happened back at the start of August that suggest that there is life in the old dog yet, but they stand diametrically opposed to each other. So first, Steamforged Games released new fluff for Guild Ball. And second, the Guild Ball volunteer community released a set of errata for the game. The details of these don't matter for the purposes of this podcast, and in any case, I wouldn't understand them. But we'll talk about why they are interesting and significant. Second is the sad news that Secret Weapon Miniatures is the latest victim of the COVID pandemic and has announced their imminent closure with various knock-on effects upon their product range and projects in hand. We'll look at whether this really represents the end and of what. Speaking of things coming to an end, though less dramatically, Asmodee has finalised the shift of the Star Wars licence from their Fantasy Flight game subsidiary to Atomic Mass Games, but putting it all on the Asmodee website. Now I'll do my best to peer into the crystal ball to understand what's going on here. Let's break this down. Prepare for Intel Analysis. Given that I don't play Guild Ball and certainly don't care about its fluff or indeed its lore or whatever you want to call it, then why am I so interested by the news from SFG that I'm prepared to return to it almost four weeks since the events actually took place? Well, the first thing I need to do is give a little shout out to the Roll Better podcast, whose show I happened to stumble upon the other day and who alerted me to these events. I'm not that deeply plugged into loads of other games, try as I might, I just simply can't keep my finger on every pulse, so I spent a highly enjoyable couple of hours listening to them talking about a wide range of topics before they got to Guild Ball, a game with which their show has been particularly associated. And it does have to be said that there is something strangely meditative in listening to four guys discussing the minutiae and amendments in errata in a game about which I know almost nothing. But if you cast your mind back almost exactly 12 months to when the news of Guild Ball's imminent demise broke, you might remember me mentioning that there was no sign then that SFG was looking for a new owner for the Guild Ball property. And nothing has changed in that respect. And frankly, I find that mildly suspicious. SFG, after all, sold its soul to licensed board game Kickstarters in return for a mess of pottage, or more specifically, £5 million in venture capital funding. There is in that an inevitability in squeezing the maximum value out of an intellectual property 
And a property that's sitting around doing nothing is just money not being earned. As interest in games wanes, the value of that IP is only going to wane along with it, so it's odd to me that representatives of SFG's sugar daddies aren't pressing them to sell off the IP for a fat chunk of extra cash while it's still worth something. But, as I said, it's only mildly suspicious, because a cooler head would appreciate that in our industry, letting an intellectual property slip out of your direct and exclusive control can end up being a costly mistake. We've seen it happen over and over with Battletech, Robotech, Void, Warzone, Traveller, and even the Lord of the Rings, if you dig back far enough. A lot of these properties had at one point the potential to dominate the market, only to fall back. But subsequent attempts to exploit them for licensing have diluted the clear understanding of where ownership lies, resulting in attempts to reboot or relaunch these properties stalling and failing time after time. So, should Guild Ball fans take heart from SFG's reluctance to sell out and hope that there may be a resurgence of support for their favourite game? Well, probably not. You see, I don't think that the release of new fiction to support the Guild Ball setting and the release by the volunteer community at the longshanks.org site coming at roughly the same time is a coincidence. Rather, I think that SFG has taken some wise counsel when it comes to protecting their intellectual property. The fact that Guild Ball refuses to die and continues to be supported by enthusiastic fans means that, left to its own devices, there is a very real risk that it would grow out of SFG's future control. Without actively seeking to exploit their IP, whilst permitting amateurs to tinker with it, SFG's ownership could eventually be perceived to have lapsed, making them unable to fully exploit that ownership in the future. Releasing new fiction is SFG's way of sending their mascot to take a piss on their opponent's goal. Did I get that right, Bernard? How am I supposed to know? Ask your friends at Roll Better. I think I've made her jealous by listening to other podcasts. Anyway, the point is that by releasing new fiction, SFG has made a unilateral statement that the IP is theirs and that they stake their rights over it. By doing so without seeking to shut down or control Longshanks or their volunteer committee or rules developers, SFG has retained the authority to tolerate the fan exploration of their works without losing the legal right to slap that with a banhammer should they so choose. So it's a mixed bag of news for Guild Ball fans. First, new errata. Yay! Second, the gaming community still lives. Double yay! Third, SFG still clearly wants to own and control the IP. Triple yay! But none of them Sorry, none of that adds up to them having any plans to do anything with the game or the IP anytime soon. In fact, if anything, it's indicative of the opposite, that they will be doing the absolute bare legal minimum to sustain their ownership of the IP for the foreseeable future. But one day, who knows? And... Talking about things coming to an end, let's take a moment of solemn silence to remember the awesome and entrepreneurial company that was Secret Weapon Miniatures. 
If you've not encountered it before, I can't say I'd be hugely surprised. Secret Weapon was established by Justin McCoy, aka Mr. Justin, about 15 years ago, give or take. And it's been one of those little businesses in our industry that kind of just about does okay and once in a while produces something of genius that gets people excited. Secret Weapon mostly started out in the resin base explosion of the early noughts and was notable by the quality of their resin casting. A few projects caught my eye over the years. The first was the release of a 28mm resin and metal IFV that looked like it might be the start of their own miniatures range, but although that was a lovely mini and I owned one for a long time before selling it on, um, it never really turned into anything bigger. They also grabbed a lot of attention when they started making their own range of washes not long after GW first released Null Oil and Devlin Mud. Secret Weapon were among the first to make their own washes in-house, in the kinds of quantities that made it feasible to wash entire tanks or even titans, and at a fraction of the cost of the GW offering with all of the same quality and consistency. Remarkably, they also released their recipe for making the washes. Now, I don't know if that resulted in any lost sales, but it certainly did a lot for the credibility of the business as a company on the side of the consumer. The most recent project really caught people's attention, though, was Tablescapes. If you missed it, and it was a few years ago now, Tablescapes was Secret Weapon's closest approach to what might be vaguely thought of as the big time. Inspired by Games Workshop's now out-of-production battle boards, which were two-foot-by-two-foot injection-moulded plastic sheets that could be joined together to make a hard-wearing, transportable and modular gaming table, tablescapes were all that but better. Justin set out to make a collection of modular tiles that players could mix and match that were smaller, lighter and more transportable than the relatively unwieldy battle boards. The designs covered fantasy, science fiction, urban, rural, desert and more. The tablescapes were painstakingly designed and manufactured in the factories of the masters of cheap injection moulded plastic, the Chinese. The Kickstarter successfully funded at over $300,000 and went into production smoothly and on schedule, and backers received their rewards fairly quickly. But then things went wrong. Precisely what went wrong depends on who you ask, but it boils down to Secret Weapon and their Chinese manufacturing partner having a fundamental disagreement over who owned the steel dies from which the modules were cast. This is far from the first time this has happened in our industry and others, and it is a common problem facing Western-based Kickstarters that seek to manufacture their goods in China. The lesson is simple. Do not make contractual agreements with people against whom you can exercise no meaningful legal restitution if things go wrong. For Secret Weapon, what it meant was that once the Kickstarter was fulfilled, they had no way of expanding manufacturing to put the product into retail sale or onto the shelves of stores worldwide. The demand was there, but supply was tied up in legal knots and written in Chinese. A sort of second attempt at Tablescapes was made by Second Secret Weapon in partnership with Reaper Miniatures, but this was for modular dungeons, and to be honest, it's a crowded market. And although the campaign met its funding goal, there was little in the way of follow-up. 
Since then, Secret Weapon has mostly stuck to doing what it did best, which was resin bases of the very highest quality and in a huge range of different designs and themes. But resin bases do not a deep or sustained business make. The impact of COVID in this cannot be overstated, and it's worth acknowledging here that tabletop games have been in the mainstream news recently with a nice BBC article about how people discovered or returned to the hobby during their respective lockdowns as a way of staying in good mental health or of connecting in new ways with a family not used to having so much face-to-face -face time. These articles have cheerfully reported how well companies like Games Workshop, Mantic Games and Warlord have done out of lockdown and have featured photographs of useful things like the last edition of Kill Team just in case that should inspire readers to search for the game and discover, lo and behold, that there's a new edition, literally just out, right now. Did I say that the head of marketing at Games Workshop is a legitimate master of the art? I think I may have mentioned that before. However, to the credit of the journalists behind this story, it ended up not just about the satisfied grins of Ronnie Renton and John Stallard. Uh, Kevin Roundtree, the CEO at Games Workshop, keeps such a low profile that I had to look up his name just for this episode. At the tail end of the story, Annie Norman of Bad Squiddo got to have a say. And a quick aside to say how glad I am that Annie has graduated from being token female industry representative to being very much the media face of independent micro-enterprise in the wargaming world. I honestly can't think of anyone I'd rather have take on that job, and I know so many others in the business who think the same. Anyway, the point was that Annie made it clear that whilst the lockdown had been great for the big operators, it had been painful for the hundreds of much smaller businesses who have historically relied upon the day-to-day -day social Brownian motion of the independent sector of retail stores, clubs, conventions and events for their existence. And it looks like Secret Weapon has stepped up to be the object lesson of this very scenario. Having said that, however, is this necessarily the end for Secret Weapon? Well, not exactly. For a start, they are already making plans to ensure that their products stay in production with new owners, and they have also committed to ensuring that their outstanding Kickstarter commitments are fulfilled by them or by the new owners of relevant IP. So if there's anything in particular that Secret Weapon makes and you want it, well, odds are it will find a new home somewhere. In the meantime, by the time this episode airs, their website should have reopened in a grand stock sell-off that will run until the end of the month at least, so hurry along there. Which brings me to the last thing to think about when it comes to the end of Secret Weapon, because we've been here before, several times in fact, why not that long ago I was reporting that Fenris Games, who we thought had died just before the first lockdown, had found themselves so buoyed up by the response to their closing down sale that they didn't close down. In fact, just this last week, I saw that they're releasing new anthro miniatures of dogs, badgers, and... Is that a polar bear with a sword? That is indeed a polar bear with a sword. Okay, then. Anyway, my point is that a small and well-beloved business like Secret Weapon announcing their imminent closure 
doesn't necessarily mean that they are imminently closing. I suspect in this case that they really are. So you really should get along and take advantage of their sale while it's happening. But at the same time, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the massive spike in income could change their minds entirely and see Secret Weapon limp on just a little longer yet. Star Wars Legion, to shift, is one of those games I've, I've always wanted to like, yet I've never quite felt that I can, and there are a lot of reasons why that might be, but I think a big part of it is exemplified in the decision at Asmodee to rationalise their Disney IP licences under the Asmodee website, rather than shifting it from the FFG website to a new Atomic Mass Games website. If there is a company out there with the clout to really challenge Games Workshop in the miniatures wargaming market, it isn't Warlord or Mantic, both of which are run by XGW men along GW lines and as part of the wider GW hobby sphere. No. The real potential challenger right now is Asmodee. You see, Asmodee doesn't play by Games Workshop's rules. They they don't care about emulating Games Workshop in order to muscle their way into the market. Rather, Asmodee operates like... Well, it operates like any other company in any other market. They make acquisitions to expand, they sell off or shut down unprofitable teams, they market hard in conventional ways, and they reach their consumers through conventional routes like toy shops, department stores and independent retailers. Games Workshop carved out its niche by playing a bit of a different game, which meant that they never had to compete in the same commercial milieu as Asmodee has. I've reported in the past regarding the relatively high-handed and shoddy way in which Fantasy Flight has treated its employees since its acquisition by Asmodee, but in retrospect, I think I made two mistakes. First, I laid too much blame at the foot of Fantasy Flight for decisions that were almost certainly imposed upon them by Asmodee. And second, I treated Asmodee as if, if it were a company like Games Workshop. Now, GW's come under fire multiple times for its business practices, but the fact that it has, and the fact that in every single case its business practices were entirely lawful and completely normal for commercial enterprise, just highlights that GW has 35 years of operating under the scrutiny of its fans. Asmodee just doesn't have that level of engagement, nor is it used to operating in that way. So whilst Atomic Mass continues to be a thing, it now seems to have been relegated to being a miniatures game development division for Asmodee. Whilst Asmodee has taken entirely unto itself the responsibility for engagement with its customers in the miniatures wargaming market. This makes me wonder how long it will be before Fantasy Flight goes the same way, relegated in status from wholly owned subsidiary to hobby board game development team. This makes a certain amount of commercial sense. No longer will customers continue to pay a lot of attention to who's in AMG or FFG. Instead, all roads will lead to Asmodee, but at the same time, I wonder if Asmodee is aware of what they're taking on. The fans of Star Wars Legion are very much the same people who play or who have played Games Workshop games. They have certain expectations. 
And Asmodee is going to have to start engaging with them at that point if they want to keep marketing into the chunk of the market in which GW has built its considerable and very comfortable nest. It'll be interesting to see how Asmodee progresses in their use and exploitation of both the Star Wars license and their entrance into miniatures war games. Intelligence logged. Analysis confirmed. Applying data. I'm about 18 months into running Precinct Omega as a full-time venture, and I find myself forced to ask myself how I move forward. The experience of companies like Steamforged Games, Secret Weapon, and yes, even Asmodee, bring me face to face with some difficult truths. I can keep pouring time and money into developing games that are as good as I can make them, but I have ambitions for this business that go beyond me sitting at a laptop, throwing words out into the universe and hoping that someone will pay for the questionable privilege of reading them. I want this to be a business that provides a route to market for innovative and imaginative new products and services. I want to help more people than just me scratch a living from our niche of a hobby. But doing this seems to require compromises I don't feel ready to make. Would I take venture capital if it were offered to me? It's easy to take the ethical high road when no one is offering to buy my soul, but I'm pretty confident the answer is it depends who's doing the offering. And funnily enough, you might think that it should depend on what they want in return for the money, but although that does matter, it matters less than the person on the other end of the transaction. More importantly, to take venture capital, I'd have to have an idea on what to spend it on. Venture capitalists don't have to look for investment opportunities. Those opportunities tend to come to them with plans and proposals and grand visions for a spectacular return on their investment. I, meanwhile, don't have that. Secret Weapon had a plan for growth and they turned to crowdfunding. I've talked about this and my reservations multiple times, so I won't rehash that here. Suffice to say that Justin took the wily Coyote approach in which he was constantly coming up with innovative schemes to help push Secret Weapon miniatures past the barrier from micro-enterprise into small business and beyond. In case you're wondering, quick aside, small businesses are usually considered to be any business with between 5 and 50 employees. Between 50 and 150, you're usually considered to be small to medium, and having between 150 and 500 makes you a medium-sized enterprise. These are very rough figures, of course, and some people struggle with businesses with only a handful of employees that nevertheless make millions of dollars in annual profit. But the use of employees rather than revenue to define a business like this makes sense because employees are an intensely sensitive measure. When losing a single employee means losing 20% of your workforce, that's a big deal, regardless of your revenue. Secret Weapon is a good illustration of the tenuous nature of micro-enterprise that Annie Norman alluded to. And Precinct Omega is super sensitive to the same pressures. It's one reason that I'm looking to scale back my retail enterprise. I understand that another retailer in the UK is taking on Strato Mini's stock, so I'll be selling mine off without a plan to restock it. 
basically, I can't afford to keep a thousand pounds of assets in blister packs on my studio wall, and I can't afford to take the time out from my work writing games that pay my wages in order to better market the miniatures that don't. Asmodee is a fascinating case to look at. After selling a 40% stake to an investment company in 2007, they were acquired in whole by a private equity firm, which led to a splurge of international acquisitions. To give you a sense of the scale of their growth, Asmodee's 2013 acquisition was completed for the not insubstantial fee of 143 million euros. But their subsequent sale to the private equity firm PAI Partners was for the rather more eye-catching figure of 1.2 billion euros. That's a tenfold increase in value in five years. Now I don't expect or indeed want Precinct Omega to ever be worth even the lower of those two figures, but it serves to illustrate the galvanising effect on a business of not simply money, but of a plan for how to spend the money. Asmodee's 2007 deal directly funded their acquisition of Esvedium, the UK's largest hobby games distributor. Then their 2013 deal led directly to the acquisitions of Days of Wonder, Fantasy Flight, Mayfair Games, Z-Man, Plaid Hat and many others. The plan to take Asmodee into the global market was well plotted and flawlessly executed. Precinct Omega has had a plan from the start and I've talked about it before but as I spend more and more time studying the market and the performance and behaviour of other companies the more I think that my plan for steady, consistent, modest growth simply won't return the performance that I want, even given my very modest ambitions. If I want Precinct Omega to achieve the breakthrough success for its games that I imagine for it, and for me, I need a more ambitious plan. I'm always highly suspicious of trite motivational sayings. I'm sure you've Heard it said that you should shoot for the moon, because even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. But the stars are cold, and dead, and airless, and you will die there. I've already chronicled multiple moonshots that ultimately ended in metaphorical death. I have plans for Precinct Omega, and for Horizon Wars, and I want to see them come to fruition for those people who've already bought into the project to one extent or another. But I can't afford to be timid when it comes to advancing those plans. Over the next 6 to 12 months then, I need to begin actively making things happen. I need a better plan. But I'm not sure what it should be. Answers on a postcard, please. Recognitive function online. Logic engine online. Stand by for predictions. Now I had to kind of bite my tongue on a few things as I recorded this week's podcast because not long ago I got to chat with the owner of Nordic Weasel Games and author of Three Parsecs From Home, Evan Sorensen. We talked about his path into game design, which was a lot more like mine than our previous interviewees who cut their teeth at Games Workshop, and also about his approach to games and mechanics, which are entirely unlike mine. Now, I had a great time learning from him, and some of what he had to say is actually 
directly relevant to my philosophizing in this episode. So please come back next week and check that out. The Precinct Omega Game Design Podcast is supported by our patrons on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Precinct Omega to help us continue developing new games and creating hobby content for war games enthusiasts all over the world.